Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You'll also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We've recorded bonus episodes about the new Disney Plus series Loki and about the state of movie streaming across many of the main streaming services. So expect those soon. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. We've come to an interesting divergence point in our year and a half of quarantainment options in that after so many months of focusing on films you can watch at home, now we're talking about films that are opening in theaters and for home viewing at the same time. We're in a choose-your-own-adventure state of movie going, where you can quarantine or not, depending on your comfort level. This week, we're looking at two musicals that are likely to make the outdoors in summer look awfully tempting, given how both of them use wide-open urban spaces and fill the screen with explosive energy. They aren't always the happiest stories, but they certainly both have the feel of sweaty outdoor spaces. Okay, I can't believe we've gotten this far into the podcast already, and no one's commented on how pretty I look. Wait, what? I I think you look about like usual, Scott. Uh, Are you using a new conditioner or something? No, I just feel pretty today, and I think we should celebrate that. Maybe with some kind of song. Everybody get out your taffeta bridal trains, and we'll do a little whirling. I I can't speak for anybody else, but I'm not really feeling like twirling right now, Scott. I hope this isn't some gender conformity thing here, where you're trying to tell me I can't look pretty if I want to. No, you can identify however you want. We're all just kind of wondering what's different here. We're, We're not seeing it. Okay, wait. Have you met any life-changing women lately? Maybe from afar, like across a dance floor, maybe for like only about five seconds? Well, she was on the other side of the street while I was waiting for a bus. But yes, now that you mention it, she kind of smiled at me. and It's just making me feel real pretty today. Okay. Is this going to end in some kind of tear-wringing Shakespearean tragedy? Because I need to get my funeral dress dry cleaned if it's going to get a workout this summer. Nah, I don't see that happening. I mean, I looked into it. And she's the only daughter of my family's most hated enemy. But I don't see how that could possibly go wrong. Okay, time for the direct cleaners. I'll take care of that on the break. In the meantime, Keith, if you're not feeling too pretty to participate today, how about you tell us what we're talking about this time around? Well, I think I feel just the right amount of pretty to tell you that this week we're talking about two movie musicals that both deal with the immigrant experience in New York in different eras, and both films derived from hit Broadway plays that challenge their era's ideas of what Broadway looked like. The 1961 multiple Oscar winner West Side Story takes place in a Manhattan neighborhood where a local white gang is clashing with a Puerto Rican immigrant gang, and a conflict heightened when members of the two factions fall in love in a story inspired by Romeo and Juliet. In the Heights also takes place in Manhattan in the Washington Heights neighborhood where Latinx immigrants and their descendants run businesses, fall in love, dream small dreams for the future, and question their own identities, all as a heat wave and a dangerous neighborhood blackout loom in the near future. It's two stage musicals turned screen musicals with an emphasis on the different forms of the American dream and the many different barriers people encounter when they try to pursue it. That's next up on The Next Picture Show. (laughs) 
unlike other classics. West Side Story grows younger. somewhat lamented 2012 TV series Smash, a pair of previously successful Broadway creators struggle to turn Marilyn Monroe's life and death into a musical, in spite of endless soap opera struggles involving their stars, staff, and producer. At one point in the process, they preview a version of their show that ends with Marilyn deliberately overdosing, alone in her bed on stage. There's no song, no dialogue, not even a stinger to let the audience know it's all over. And the creators are shocked when the audience just sits in confused silence. Why aren't they applauding? They're not applauding, one of them says nervously. Later, defending that flat, sad ending to the show's producer and director, they present their choice as the only possible option, because after all, Marilyn did die in real life. That plotline is one of many in Smash that felt artificial and ridiculous. How could Broadway veterans not know that audiences expect a Broadway show to wrap with some kind of exclamation point, a song to close the door on the story? But the idea seems a little more plausible after watching West Side Story, Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise's film version of the hit Broadway show. The first act of the play ends with two corpses left alone on stage after a gang rumble, with both of the gangs that participated left leaderless, devastated, and desperate. The play and movie both end in a similarly subdued fashion, with one of the two young romantic leads dead and the other devastated, with their community shattered and shaken, and with not a song in sight. Both of those story decisions were deeply shocking to critics and viewers at the time, who were generally used to bouncier, lighter confections, and certainly used to being ushered out the door with a song in their hearts. That downbeat, songless ending was just one of West Side Story's many innovations, which shook up Broadway when it premiered in 1957, after a decade of slow development. Originally conceived as a modern-day update of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, as a conflict between an Irish Catholic family and a Jewish family on Manhattan's Lower East Side, yeah, originally it was called East Side Story, the play went through many iterations, creative hands, and kerfuffles over credit before it debuted, to rapturous reviews that routinely also felt a bit appalled by Robin's aggressive choreography, Leonard Bernstein's harsh, jangly score, and above all, the ugliness of the material, which touches on institutional prejudice against immigrants, corrupt and oppressive policing, drug use, domestic abuse, and above all, racism. Audiences were enthused. The play opened to a successful multi-year run, but they were also shaken by what they saw. Robbins wanted exactly that level of discomfiture in the audience. He designed the dance sequences to be physically challenging and full of staccato, angry movement. 
He wanted the story to shock people and to accurately portray what he felt was happening to the youth of Manhattan, particularly in impoverished neighborhoods. While he was directing the play, he routinely penned newspaper articles about gang warfare to the theater's call board, encouraging his actors to internalize how up to the moment the material was, how they were portraying real and relevant issues, even as they were singing particularly playful and bouncy songs. The 1961 film version, directed by Robbins and Robert Wise, feels less like an attempt to shock and more like it's out to seduce viewers into the strain of its clashing worldviews. The film went through a similarly bumpy creation process, with Robbins eventually fired from the film for his perfectionist tendencies, which had him shooting the dance sequences over and over until he went over time and over budget. But the reviews of the film were significantly more positive than the reviews of the play. Issue films and raw, dramatic, real-world material were much more familiar to filmgoers at the time than Broadway-goers at the time. And where Broadway saw material that pushed the envelope, Hollywood just saw the vivid color and big emotions of a movie musical, along with startlingly spectacular choreography and a daring story. The movie ultimately won 10 Oscars, and it went down in history as a classic, one of the all-time great movie musicals. These days, a lot of things about West Side Story look quaint or problematic to modern viewers, most particularly the casting, which turns white, Greek, and Japanese actors into Puerto Rican characters with a heavy dose of brown face makeup and exaggerated accents. Even co-star Rita Moreno, who actually is Puerto Rican, had to wear skin-darkening makeup. And when she protested, her makeup artist accused her of racism. The 1950s slang, heavy on the get-hit-daddy-o stylings, feels forced, and the emotions are played broad and strident, as if aiming for the last balcony of an immense theater. The presentation is often deliberately stagey, and while the film opens by soaring across Manhattan and observing a neighborhood from above, many of its key sequences feel set-bound, and they play out with an invisible proscenium in mind, instead of feeling like they take place in real spaces. But while all that stylization may make the story feel false in places, the songs are still catchy, singable earworms. And Ernest Lehman's script, working from Arthur Laurent's stage book, is awfully clever about showing both sides of the story and highlighting the ironies of what turns out to be a fatal gang war. In a west side neighborhood of Manhattan, two street gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, duke it out for control of the streets. The Sharks are Puerto Rican and largely seem to be new immigrants who came to the States looking for opportunity, where they have mixed responses to what they found in New York. The Jets, all local white boys who resent the new arrivals, consider the neighborhood theirs and are willing to fight to establish their dominance and control. And yet, while both groups hate each other, West Side Story spends time with both groups behind the scenes, showing how little the Jets have and how they've come to define their masculinity and presence in the world around their control of the block, while the Sharks are suffering in a country that judges them by their skin color. The Romeo and Juliet angle, with Jets co-founder Tony and new immigrant Maria falling for each other after a shared glance across the dance floor, sets everybody up for tragedy. But while their doomed love story is familiar and age-old, the setting around them still feels relevant and modern, even with all its 1950s and 1960s trappings. The way the Jets and the Sharks have more in common with each other than with the adults around them, the way they instantly fall into comfortable camaraderie whenever the local cops turn up, is darkly funny and immensely telling. So is the way the Jets sing, in an idle moment, about how the law, social workers, and psychiatrists judge their juvenile delinquency. They accurately point at the neglect and abuse that turn them all out on the streets, but they mock it as possibly a root cause for who they are. West Side Story certainly isn't as shocking today as it was in 1957 or in 1961. Bernstein's lurching score and screaming strings are familiar to us by now. Latinx rhythms and dancing are a regular part of mainstream culture instead of foreign-feeling exotica. 
And in an age of constant mass shootings, the juvenile delinquents run amok plot seems almost innocent, given how nervous both the Jets and the Sharks are about real weapons and the possibility of real bloodshed. But the film still feels relevant in some ways. If Robbins was making it today, he'd still have plenty of relevant clippings to pin to that call board, this time about drive-by shootings and racist policing. The scene where a prejudiced police lieutenant unloads his bile on the sharks, knowing that they can't fight back, and they sullenly leave the area, sarcastically whistling my country tis of thee, feels as raw now as it did back then. And the Romeo and Juliet plot, where two people want to be together and their communities hold them back, will have some resonance in every age. The end of West Side Story still doesn't feel like it belongs to a Broadway stage, but it does feel like it belongs on the screen, where tragic endings have always been welcome. And sometimes audiences expect to walk out after the credits roll, crying rather than singing. Weapons. You call. Your challenge. Who? Fate to call? <laughs> Rocks. Belts. Pipes. Cans. Bricks. Bats. Clubs. Chains. Bottles. Knives. Guns. What a coop full of chickens. Who are you calling chicken? Every dog knows his own. I'm calling you all chicken. Big, tough buddy boys got to throw bricks, huh? Afraid to get in close? Afraid to slug it out? Afraid to use plain skin? Not even garbage? That ain't a rumble. Who says? You said call weapons. A rumble can be clinched by a fair fight. If you've got the guts to risk that. All right, everyone. That was a lot. This is a story with a very, very long history behind it. And it gets real complicated, y'all. When you start <laughs> looking into who contributed to what and trying to untangle, like, for instance, how much Stephen Sondheim contributed as lyricist versus uh, like where each element of the story came from. <laughs> I mean, it's a 10 year history before it even hits the stage. There's a lot here. Uh, but we can start in the usual place, which is uh, what's your history with West Side Story with uh, with the film? I guess I'll start since I, I so rarely get to be the one who says, I've seen this movie lots of times. <laughs> uh, over, I, I think it's probably a movie I've watched like at least once every decade of, of, of my life. So this is probably my my fourth time watching it. I know I encountered it for the first time as a, as a young-ish child. And, you know... <laughs> Uh, listening to you uh, do your keynote, Tasha, kind of made me realize that this is a movie that in the time I spend away from it, it like builds itself up in my mind is really, really good. But then when I'm watching it, I don't actually enjoy it that much. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, and that makes me feel bad to say. Like, I mean, I, you know, I love a movie musical. I, I, like I said, listening to you talk about it, I was like, yeah, this is great. This is classic. This is like, iconic, blah, blah, blah. But actually watching it, I was like, I, I'm not enjoying it. Like, it, it feels kind of musty to me. Like, the things about it that are so great just don't actually hit the level that they've kind of been built up to in my own mind by myself. In my, it's a, it's a absence makes a heart grow fonder type of scenario, I think. But thinking about it, I think it really is about the Romeo and Juliet spine of this, which is just, it's a story. Obviously, it gets done in a million different ways. This is by no means the first or the last uh, sort of Romeo and Juliet twist adaptation. And I just, I so rarely go for it. I find it an exasperating arc, <laughs> um, you know, and like, I get it. I get like the tragedy behind it, but it just never really lands on an emotional level for me. I think I get very exasperated with the two 
children that I'm supposed to be <laughs> identifying with and their their very stupid actions. And I think even with everything else that's going on in West Side Story that is potentially you know, really exciting and great. It all just keeps getting dragged down by this central love story for me. And yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't have a lot of fun with West Side Story this time. And that's like even setting aside all the capital P problematic stuff that we could sit here and and judge the film for. Like, I don't even really want to bring that up here because for me, it's really just kind of about the two dummies at the (laughs) center of this story. (laughs) So Genevieve, taking down West Side Story and Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in one long yep. extended <laughs> yeah give me your give me your darlings let me kill them <laughs> that is that's uh, amazing to me because i had such the opposite uh, experience with it this time around but let's yeah. let's hear what everybody else has to say before we dig in uh yeah i i did not have genevieve's experience with this film i, I really love it unreservedly i mean with well not unreservedly because it's got a couple of pretty obvious <laughs> flaws uh right at the center of the, of the film but uh but i think the music the songs uh the choreography the this the filmic qualities of west side story are just overwhelmingly brilliant <laughs> to me i don't feel musty at all i look at this film and pine for a time when people actually knew how to shoot uh, movie musicals and, and, and give them a sense of scale and graphic excitement i mean i, I just i think it's uh, really um immersed in the film every time i see it and the emotions are there i think i think you know it's a little bit troubling because the leads are so poorly cast Mm -hmm. but you know when you have the two of them just you know singing you know the lyrics of Stephen Sondheim and the the music of Leonard Bernstein it's just very uh powerful I think I mean just you know and those songs are you know uh I don't know tonight and Maria and whatever, whatever the whole thing. I you know I, I, they very frequently sing these songs in my kitchen uh, while I'm cooking <laughs> dinner for my kids. I mean this 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 musical definitely sticks with me and I, and I I do really like it as a film. Don't get me wrong, like I do enjoy this as a musical. Like I think the songs and the, and the dancing. I, I have some gripes with the choreography as it applies to the uh, the Puerto Rican uh, characters, but that's you know I, we don't need to do that. But like the music of the film, I or the music of the play, I should say, really holds up. Again, since I'm just I guess being a curmudgeon, I don't really like the most of the actual vocal performances in this film. Like I think the songs are great, but the actual delivery of a lot of them is I don't think quite where I want it to be for a film with this reputation, I guess. Uh, I like this movie a lot. Um, and and uh, I, I, I actually think that the dopiness of the characters is a strength, not a weakness, because you know it's a Romeo and Juliet story. You you know they're dumb. <laughs> this isn't going to work out. <laughs> and it's going to make you know life terrible for them and for everyone around them. But they don't know that, you know. And then, then they're not knowing that is such is to me it's such a poignant detail. Like the the scene where they they you know the, the quote unquote marriage scene. Uh, really got to me this time, uh, uh, just because these are people just don't know what they're getting into at, at all, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's elements that probably could be done better without even getting into the problematicness of, of, of it all. Uh, but I like the daring of it, you know. I, I like the only one that doesn't really work for me is sort of the twinkling lights of, of the scene where they fall in love, which is kind of a, a bad scene to not really work as well as it should for for a viewer. But the rest of it from the beginning, like I I, I love the opening so much. I mean, I love the the credits, the fade to the aerial shots, which was which was uh, apparently quite shocking to audiences at the time because they weren't used to seeing New York that way. But I feel like the 
way the jets, you know, move together in this menacing fashion through actual streets, actual New York streets at the beginning. And then they break into like dance moves. Like you, you, you don't mm-hmm. really, you, you know, you could think you're watching this docu, you know, sort of docu realism uh, portrait of of, uh, of New York life until all of a sudden a musical breaks out within uh, New York itself. I, I love that, and the ending is ending wrecks me. It's it's a it's an a, you know amazing end. Other stuff in the middle, sure we can we can nitpick it, but I, I actually <laughs> uh, I, I, I think this film's remarkable, and I would actually this is uh, high on my wish list of films I wish I could see on the big screen. I've I've only seen it I guess only twice, once on DVD and then once today. Uh, on on Blu-ray, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, it's I definitely a film I admire. I I feel like I don't say the words I I agree fully with Keith and had the same experience as him very often. It's not that it. we we clash as often as Scott and I do, but uh, we always seem to just be a little off kilter from each other. But that's exactly where I was. This is one of those movies that I grew up on that was just so like burned into my engrams. I probably could have just sang you most of the, at least the upbeat songs, even though I hadn't seen the movie in probably 20 years. And when I sat down to watch it, I kind of told my husband, well, I'm probably just going to skim through like long sections of this. I can probably skip the songs because I remember it all so well. And then just from the moment the aerial shots started at the beginning, I was immersed and uh, <laughs> didn't want to turn away, even though it's so long and it was so familiar. And I ended up having something of the same experience I had revisiting Sound of Music as an adult. When I saw Sound of Music over and over as a child, it was a, a musical about a bunch of kids that go on a lot of cool adventures and get to wear drapes and run all over the place singing. And this really cool babysitter who sings a lot of really memorable (laughs) songs. And then I watched it as an adult and I'm like, oh, wow, this is this is about the toppling of a country and a a man trying to come to terms with the loss of his uh, his identity and, and his belief system while he's also trying to navigate like grief for his wife and just all this stuff. I had the same experience here. What I used to experience as just a very colorful song and dance uh, thing about, you know, the scary hoodlums, I guess, on the street, but also friendly ones who, who broke into little pirouettes when they're walking around, periodically interrupted by slow, soppy songs uh, between uh, a couple of drips, suddenly opened up into this story where the romantic leads are constantly surprising themselves and each other. And I feel like that's what sunk home with me almost the most this time around was how touching that faux wedding sequence is, how it begins as just like a piece of flirtation between two people who don't know know each other at all, don't really know much of anything about each other, except that their families are going to like resent and reject each other. And they start making it into a little game they can play together. And then midway through, it shifts to them seeing a future that they want and playing it out with the audience knowing they're never going to get there. And there's just something really touchingly beautiful about that. But on top of all of that, the thing that I most appreciated this time around was just watching how all of these kids and, you know, while we're listing off problematic things, there's kind of the usual problem of these are literally supposed to be teenagers and they all look 28 or so, like way too old to, to just be gangbanging around the streets. But these kids 
like immediately fall into complete cooperation and friendliness with each other when adults are around. Whenever the police come around, like they sit down and play cards together and shoot darts together and like put their arms around each other companionably. These are things they can do. They just don't want to. They've just bound up their identities in not doing that. I do love the bit at the uh, dance scene where they're, uh, you know, kind of corralled into this group dance intended to to mix them all, mix up their partners, and they have to go in circles, and they do it begrudgingly, and then, but they, then they all just end up with the person they came with. Um, you know, I think it it's kind of what you're talking about as far as the camaraderie in the face of adult supervision. Seeing that scene again and realizing that that's John Aston, which I definitely mm-hmm. did not know as a kid. Man, that was a trip. Yeah, same. I was like, wait, John Aston? I'd forgotten that. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't want to like overstate my issue with this movie because like as i said it's a it's a movie that like i believe that i liked (laughs) you know and that i i in my analytical brain i'm like yes there's so much here and like this is absolutely this this wedding scene should be emotional for the uh, reasons you you so eloquently said tasha but and again like when i'm watching that scene i'm like this is why people need to just have premarital sex. So dummies don't do stuff like <laughs> well, this, you know, because so, they're because they're horny for each other and they can't do anything about it. So they want to get married. They, like, they totally do you know? have premarital sex. You're right. They do. But I think like it was just like, I don't know, maybe it was just like not the right time for me to watch this movie again. Maybe it's because I recently rewatched uh, Sound of Music, which is like my preferred Robert Wise uh, big musical spectacle of the 1960s by by far. And maybe it was because I saw it after In the Heights, although that's not a perfect film either. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but... <laughs> Imperfect. Okay. We'll, we'll yeah. get into it when we compare the, the mild imperfections of movies. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean... I'm not going to go so far as to say, like, I think there's only mild imperfections in West Side Story. Like, I think there are, like, some rather big problems. But I also completely understand how one can get swept up in this film. And I feel like in another scenario, it's a film that I could have gotten swept up in. But for some reason, this time around, just the magic didn't work for me. And I found myself, like, being really kind of critical of things that... Honestly, I didn't want to be critical. You know, I wanted to enjoy this film on a very kind of the spectacle, highly emotional level that I very frequently do engage with films. And I just I couldn't click into it here. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was watching it with Steve, who had never seen it before and could like feel him not (laughs) connecting with it. And it was just like kind of bled over to me. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm broken, but no. no I mean, I, I feel you. I've definitely had the experience of watching something that I know is supposed to be uh, like emotionally touching, and I, for whatever reason, I'm not getting there. And uh, you know, the tendency is to blame yourself, but you know, no art is for everybody. And if you're not feeling it on that day, you're not feeling it on that day. I used to hugely resist Romeo and Juliet style stories in any media. It just I was so tired of the convention of uh, attractive boy and girl see each other and decide they're instantly in love and they're willing to buck the world for each other because I just don't I first of all I don't believe it. Second of all, I just don't find it that interesting as a convention. Like I much prefer the the sound of music model where two people maybe maybe a Simpsons-esque uh, they hate each other then they love each other, but you know, more so they're strangers and they gradually get to see each other's charms in unrelated circumstances. It just feels so much more like real romance to me. 
No, but it's so pure, though, right? I mean, that's that's what you lock into with a story like with West Side Story. Is just, and that's what the the lyrics help with it too. It's just like it is such a thunderstruck feeling. I mean, that's what it's, it's kind of getting at. It's like that love at first sight thing or something, which may you may be okay. Maybe you think it's as a fiction or something, but I like the idealism of it, and I like to hear. I'm always seduced by characters saying, or in this case singing about their future about an optimistic future about the future they might have together you know about love etc i just think there's something just fundamentally sweet and innocent and kind of kind of fragile and heartbreaking at the same time about that the other thing i was thinking about while while we were you were having we were having this back and forth about west side story is that i i feel like i lock into certain elements of the film while while not really thinking that much about other things like like i think the actual themes of this film are not that resonant with me if i'm being Mm. honest i think it really ultimately is the music and the choreography and the filmmaking that get me every time it's not really any of the things that any of the social messaging and stuff that the film is trying to get into it's like that that stuff doesn't resonate with me it's all the other stuff that does well in the same kind of way i again like the romeo and juliet model rarely works for me but the way it's presented here musically there's something like tony and maria get a lot of songs together sung by people who are not the people we're seeing on screen (laughs) and uh i think they're all pretty but the one that really lands for me the one that touches me is somewhere where they're singing as you say about their future but they're also singing Mm -hmm. about the fact that their love is basically imaginary they're singing about a made-up magical place where they can get what they want because they, on some level, they understand that that place is not here. And they're sharing a fantasy. I, I think that's what touches me is that sense of they aren't just sharing their bodies. They aren't just sharing looks or touches or conversation. They're opening up to understanding that they both want something that just doesn't exist. And they're pretending together that it does. I agree with Tasha. That's <laughs> that is, and, and and it may you know the thing with Romeo and Juliet stories is is this love may not last to next week without this tragic ending, but they are fully invested in it and 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 believe in it. And um, if you don't necessarily believe in the practicality of it, I think you believe in the feelings they're feeling at that moment. And that's my favorite song in the piece, and it's shorter than I remember it being. Maybe they sort of somewhat truncated for the film, but but it seems like, uh, or maybe that's how it should be. It should be a short song. It's a short story in, in some ways. Well, let's talk about the songs in general, since they are kind of the the linchpins of this story. Like, what songs stand out for you, either as uh, working or not working, as, uh, as the most most forgettable? I mean, my most memorable song is also one that I think, like, has some kind of big, like, well... I don't know. I don't want to say it has problems because I think like I think it's intentional in its approach. But I really love America. I, I love mm-hmm. like that whole scene, and I am every single time just floored when Anita says that her home, <laughs> her home island can sink into the ocean for all she cares. Like it's a really weird lyric, and there's like, you know, this is pretty early Sondheim. I, I am in. I am not here to say anything bad about Stephen Sondheim. I will say that this is like an early work of his, and is you know there are maybe some places where he was still working out the kinks. And I think that those are 
evident in, in some lyrics uh, in, in in America. But at the same time, like the you know his like signature sort of syncopation and wordplay is also like really present there. You know, in a sort of um, it's not even a rough draft. It's like a second draft, <laughs> you know, uh, version of of what Sondheim would become. But I just I love the energy of America. I love I, I am a sucker for a, a boy girl song, you know, or a, a dance off type of uh, scenario. And it, it is very much that it's it's always the first song that pops into my head when I hear this or when I think of a side yeah, story. I, I mean, I'm right with you on like loving loving any boy girl dynamic uh, song, any clapback song uh, where it's it's just kind of a musical duel. It's a uh, it's a really good convention of musicals. Here, one of the things that stood out for me most rewatching it this time was the fact that Bernardo and the sharks are smiling the entire time, which I think is really important because some of the language gets real harsh and some of it is very much, you know, attacking each other's promiscuity, attacking each other's values, attacking each other's experience. There's a lot of, you know, dismissing own voices. Like each other's moms. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a mean rip uh, on moms. But everybody's smiling the whole time and it feels like it feels playful. It feels very consciously and deliberately playful. Like in the same way, Dear Officer Krupke, which is a song I can absolutely understand people hating, but you know, it was definitely my favorite as a kid and that I still have very fond feelings for. It's people kind of like joyously and playfully singing out some of their, their deepest, darkest like fears and failings and how the world sees them and how they see themselves. And the fact that it's done with such a huge smile may be an artificiality of musicals, but here it just, it kind of lowers the stakes a little bit. They're singing about something that hugely matters and that they can't agree on, but they're doing it like a game. And the way they do the back and forth with the dancing, with the dance off, just kind of emphasizes that they're trying to one up each other. Yeah, I like all the I, I just like all the love songs. I like Maria. And I like somewhere. Really, I like tonight. Yeah, I, I just I just am do you like up these? Do stuff. you like these iterations of them? Because I really think these are like like these are songs I know very well, but these are some of my least favorite performances of well, them. That, I mean, I, I haven't really experienced them in any other way. In fact, oh my god, I cannot believe we talked about the history of West Side Story. Here was my first exposure to West Side Story. It was a a high school play. That my <laughs> sister was in. My, si- my sister played anybody's, and the music was someone playing a piano on the stage. It was no orchestration at all, and uh, and there was. Did, a, they, the, did they do the whole overture just on piano? I, I don't. I, I think. I think. That, <laughs> was mercifully cut short but like i remember like i remember the the leads not having particular not being able to carry a tune and my sister making fun of one of the uh, of how much her castmates did were not invested in in the play one of like she, the line she was stuck on it was somebody some kid saying vamanos chico es tarde it was basically <laughs> how it was said um so that was my first exposure to it not great not great so this is this is a massive improvement on that and i haven't and i haven't and i have not seen it in any other context so i, I think i'm able to kind of forgive a little bit more because uh this uh you know some of the vocal shortcomings here because again, I can lock into the the, the music and the in the in the lyrics um, and the dancing and the in the choreography for camera. I think I've only seen Fiddler on the Roof 
via high school productions. Uh, so I should probably go home oh and watch the movie yeah, at some point. That's, I mean, that's another one from my childhood <laughs> that I could sing you most of and that I should probably revisit because it's definitely going to play different to uh, an adult. But Topol's performance uh, as, as Tevia in the movie version is my definitive performance for sure. Genevieve, do you have a, a preferred recording or rendition? Oh, I mean, I don't want to uh, sit here and claim that like I, I have been listening to, uh, you know, different rec- uh, cast recordings of, of West Side Story over there. I, I'm talking more like on a song by song basis, because these are such well known songs. And so many of them, particularly the the love songs have been covered by other artists over the years. Um, I think probably the the one that sticks out to me is, is Somewhere. I feel like when your first encounter with Somewhere is Barbara Streisand's <laughs> version hearing tony and maria do it here is just gonna kind of be uh, a little underwhelming but you get the, but you get the gritty street <laughs> realism of the performances okay, just despite the stuff that i brought up in the keynote realism is just not a word i'm going to apply much to uh the film version of west side story but the gesture of it is there those opening shots are so fantastic like just the whole idea this that Overture, then the, the graphics and the over, overture sort of outlining the city. Then we see the city, and then we get all those overhead shots, and 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 we, when we do kind of cut to the action, that those those scenes feel like you know they're on the streets a, l- a little bit. They don't feel quite as set bound as some of the other bits in the film. But um, I don't know. I mean, that's a hard thing for Broadway musicals to figure out, right? When you want to introduce a certain amount of street realism, it's hard to keep the artifice of Broadway from ruining that in some way or from tainting that in some way. Before we move on from like discussing specific numbers, like I again kind of want to go back and make clear, like I do think the opening of this film is incredible and I appreciate that opening number for not having many lyrics and for letting dance do a lot of the character and storytelling work there. You know, I, as I said before, like I have some issues with the choreography being a little uniform over the course of this production in a way that I I would prefer it wasn't. But in that opening scene, like it, the choreography hits so hard, and like I said, it really kind of works as character without needing to actually even have lyrics. And I think that is what makes it a really sort of remarkable introduction into this musical. Well, also before basketball we... is terrible, though. Absolutely, <laughs> oh, absolutely, the worst basketball I've ever seen. It's a bunch of very young white boys playing street ball. Like, what do you want? This is—it's all no. It's just drama kids, drama kids that, who do no, who have no interest in sports. Stage that, stage that sequence. I can tell you for sure. Uh, you know, I'm putting you in the box with the people who uh, watch a movie and then yell because, yes, it's set in Chicago, but this shot is she's heading north on Lakeshore Drive, and in the next shot, she's heading south on Lakeshore Drive, and these two locations are six miles apart from each other, so how dare? Like, <laughs> yeah, Scott, Scott stated for your uh, YouTube uh, clip, your YouTube video, uh, pointing out all the, all, the, all the flaws. Cinema <laughs> I, did, I, did Scott, I, can help, I can help you with that, Scott. I have some ideas. I did get, I did get hung up in one shot in the big sick that was shot in Chicago where it was like, are they driving out of Lake Michigan past Navy Pier? Why would they do that? That's very strange. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The movie The Weatherman is, is a nightmare if, if you actually know Chicago geography. <laughs> we might be drifting a little bit here. Before That's we true. move on from individual songs, I guess the two that I want to kind of explore a little bit, the two that feel most like outliers to me 
our G Officer Krupke, which is playful in a way. Most of the rest of the musical is not uh, and sort of presentational. And this rendition of it is is very harsh. There's like just a lot of kind of vocal shouting and goofy voices. But I still love it. I think for the construction, for the humor, and for the degree to which the boys are recognizing all of these social forces that shaped them, they're just, they're mocking, like every generation, like they don't want to think that the older generation has pegged them in any way. They don't want to feel seen or recognized by people they consider squares. So they're mocking the whole thing. But I can see a lot of reasons to not like that song. I'm curious how you guys uh, feel about it. It's clever, and I admired it. And I was okay when it was over. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not my favorite. <laughs> it's. I, I think the one you're about to talk about that is also not my favorite, but something I sing to myself all the time. Go. go uh, we'll, we'll, I, I, I'm just. I'm holding my guess in my head. I want to see if I'm right. Go ahead, Tasha. No. First. Oh, first. Tonight. I. First, I want to hear boy, how much you. Boy. Yep. Crazy. <laughs> yep. Boy. That's it. We'll get to that in one second, Genevieve. How yep. much do you hate, dear Officer Krumpke? Um. Uh, reasonable amount because um. <laughs> I would I would think if your problem is uh, kind of questionable vocal renditions that that yeah. would be one of the ones you found grating for sure like riff is I, I mean I actually think uh, riff is like one of my like preferred performances like in terms of like not everything but singing in, in this film but uh, I, I think as far as the singing goes he's definitely one of one of the, the weaker links yeah I don't know I I don't have strong feelings, honestly, about about Dear Officer Krupke for whatever reason. Maybe it's, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I I, I don't have any uh, hot takes uh, on this one. <laughs> but it sounds like people have hot takes on, yes, you're right, the other song I was going to bring up. Cool, which I find very swinging and catchy, but I also feel like the movie version goes on twice as long as, as it needs to to get the point across. Like, I, I get the need for like kind of an expansive scene as they're working out this energy and working out this rage. One of the things I like least in films is when uh, somebody really important to characters die and they kind of have like 15 seconds of grief and then just move on and ignore it for the rest of the film. And the degree to which we get to see these boys like trying to figure out functional ways to process it and then get back into the lives the way they feel they need to lead them, I think is fascinating. But then the dancing just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And uh, to me, it's just it's just too much. It's got a whole lot of lingo. It's like a, a high, a, a very high concentration of sort of jazz, uh, you know, lingo uh, in, in this song. I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. the movie ha the movie has a lot of that throughout, but this is definitely the the highest concentration there. It's also, I feel like, maybe one of the most Sondheimy songs, just in terms of the the way the lyrics are actually put together and work in in conjunction with the music. It's weird because I feel like I'm saying like all everything I like about Cool when it's like not one of my top songs of, of the musical at all. But I do like how it has this very like percussive punctuation of them sort of like busting out of their ability to be cool. Like, I'm, I'm still angry, you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I like appreciate that, I guess, again, on a sort of song as character level. It's charmingly quaint, I think, all of that, all of that language. And it, again, it's just, it's just such an earworm for me, that song. Actually, just the whole musical is, like, except for the Officer Krupke song, which I never think about. But that one I do. It's also the one I think that has the most 
parodies that I remember, or that, or it's the it's the the one that comes to mind first when I think of of parodies of West Side Story. I would songs. think that would be I Feel Pretty. I, I think that that, that song yeah, has that's like up there too. Well, and obviously the opening number with the snapping, sure, you know, is, but um, yeah, and really Maybe the I'm, entire musical and yeah, <laughs> again, the popular musical. problem of being iconic. Should we yeah. talk about individual performances? I like especially given uh, how Genevieve feels. I'm kind of wondering, if nothing else, I feel like we've got to talk about Natalie Wood. As, uh, oh, I was going to say we got to talk about Rita Moreno. Well, we got to talk about her too, <laughs> but I'm I'm positive if she doesn't come up here, she'll come up uh, in next week's uh, comparisons discussion uh, for various reasons. But there are a lot of people here that we should maybe talk about at least a little. But I feel like <laughs> Natalie Wood gives one of the film's most important performances and also maybe one of the most generic performances here yes tied yeah. with <laughs> tied with the guy who plays tony richard Bamer. richard, yeah. Bamer. richard twin peaks Bamer. yeah i yes. enjoyed the twin peaks fan of me really enjoyed seeing richard Bamer and rusty <laughs> <That Amblin's> <laughs> together oh my God, uh, he is incredibly I, attractive in this movie i will definitely Tamblin say or Bamer? that Bamer, sorry what about Tamblin? Tam- tamlin's Tam- fine yeah, yeah sure yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I, I don't need to sit here praising Rita Moreno's performance in this film. Like, I th- she won an Oscar for it. Like, it's obviously a enshrined already. I, I more just want to bring it up as noting that Anita is a character that I feel gets like really underserved. <laughs> well, that's not that's not quite fair. I think Anita is a character is the reason I got so frustrated with Maria and Tony as a couple, especially at the end when they're going through their whole "Oh, you killed my brother" thing, and like no one's like. Um, Anita is also going through something right now, guys, and no one's like, you know, and and she's going off to do you a favor and almost gets gang raped or, you know, this being musical convention does gang raped, you know, like it's like I, I hate what happens to her character in the last act of this movie. And I think maybe that resentment kind of bleeds into my feelings about the central couple. It kind of makes a villain of her, yeah. maybe, maybe probably by accident, but but it, it, you know, yeah, it, it doesn't give you because you know it, it's her saying that Chico killed uh, Maria that like sets this final tragedy in motion, mm-hmm. and she says right. that out of anger and and spite and. You know, if you sit there and think about it, like, yeah, there's absolutely like, like, I absolutely get why she did that. But I don't think the film gives us enough of Anita's like interiority, especially as you know, and how she's reacting to Bernardo's death to make that land as not villainous as, you know, someone in mourning and someone in, yeah, someone going through her own stuff. Like the, the focus is just so strongly on Maria and Tony's emotions in that final third. And I only cared about Anita. <laughs> I, I think the film, one of the other things that surprised me about this viewing was just the degree to which, like, I don't think critics of the time from what I'm reading felt the same kind of sympathies that we do for the, particularly the portrayal of the Puerto Ricans in general, I think the film has a lot more sympathy for them than it got credit for in terms of what they're experiencing in terms of prejudice and what they're experiencing in terms of abuse. And I think the film has a lot more uh, sympathy with Anita, like a modern version of the film would give us some kind of closure on her, wouldn't have her just like drop her bomb and disappear. 
But I, in that moment, I absolutely sympathize with her response, her just kind of like, like knee jerk attack on them and everything they believe. Like she wants to punish them. And the only way she has in her arsenal is, is with words. And I maybe thought she was a villain when, when, when I was younger, but uh, like this time around, I, I understand why she does what she does. And to some degree, she's probably hoping that it'll break them up. And she has every reason to want that. It would be interesting to see a modern version of West Side Story done on the screen, for the screen. <laughs> should, we, should, should we should we just put right out here that like yes we know there is a new West Side Story coming out later this year that we theoretically could have paired. I was questioned with about this that. On, I was questioned about that on Twitter, and I was kind of like, wow, well, we didn't want to do the one to one thing. We thought it would be a little more, a little better to approach it from a different angle. Yeah, yeah I think this is with, more interesting. I guess next episode we'll bear that out whether or not we may have made a horrible mistake. We'll, I, we'll find out next we, week. I don't think nah, we have though, because as usual, our our, our judgment is impactable. <laughs> well, from from the trailer, it seems like the new version is going to be close enough that uh, it, comparing the two on a one to one basis might just end up as like a series of like minor nitpicks. And really, like exploring the the big connective themes of these two movies seemed worth the risk of not having West Side Story to compare to West Side Story in in December. But I think on top of that, there's also just a feeling of like maybe we're challenging ourselves a little to not come up with the laziest pick possible in December. <laughs> yeah, low-hanging fruit. I will say the Rita Moreno thing, it's like, you know, one one is that she that character is a supporting character. And so and so perhaps there isn't necessarily a need or desire to pay off anything involving that, you know, even though I think it gets her in dramatic situations that it does not follow through on as, as well as it should, for sure. I think the other thing is that Rita Moreno's performance is so strong and so much stronger than anybody's in the, mm-hmm. in the movie that, um, of course, we're drawn to her. You might need her. to clarify, given that there's a character literally uh, named anybody's. Co- I'm going to say <laughs> even stronger than the per- person who plays anybody's. I mean, so, so of course, we're just, we're going to naturally be drawn uh, to that character, even though I think think it by design the character is in as a character in support i mean it's this is the romeo and juliet story ultimately uh george shakiris actually won best supporting actor mm-hmm. uh for this as, as well which which uh kind of surprised me because I, I mean he's fine it's, it doesn't leap off the screen for me as a performance that needed special uh commendation but but uh maybe maybe i'm wrong this is 1961. What else? What else was? What, yeah. what, what else was he up against? <laughs> well, he was up against actually good, some good, some pretty big years. things. See, he was he was up against Montgomery Clift for Judgment at Nuremberg. He's pretty uh, good. Peter, Peter Falk for Pocket Full of Miracles, and hmm. oh, interesting, uh, beat out both Jackie Gleason and George C. Scott for The Hustler. Hmm. Oh, I don't like that. Hmm. Well, but they 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 split the vote. They did. They split. They split the hustler vote. Yeah, I've read interviews with him where he just absolutely said there was there was no way he expected to win. <laughs> I want to circle back to anybody's who I know is just the smallest part of this story, but again, is a character that I just I feel like looks completely different today. Like in the '60s, and honestly, even to me as a kid, she's she's a tomboy. You know, she's a, a flat-chested kid who wants to hang with the boys. And looking at her today, I'm like, this is probably a trans kid. Mm-hmm. She's probably wearing a binder, 100%. and she's she's dressing with the boys, and she wants to be one of the boys. And they keep rejecting her on like just like 
gross baseline sexist principles and then she gets her own little arc and she gets accepted in the end like i i almost feel like i'm using the wrong pronouns for her but you know she doesn't she wouldn't have had this the, is what they them pronouns were made for well there and, you go and, and honestly the name anybody's kind of feels like mm-hmm. a, a they them pronoun of a name even as a, a kid i recognized that as a like a, just a horrible cruel joke like that is absolutely got to be the name that the gang gave her like they all have mm. code names like mouthpiece and uh, Arab and Ice, you know, everybody but but Riff has a gang name. Anybody's is just unquestionably a cruel nickname that means she'll go with anybody. She belongs to anybody. Oh, wow. I'm dumb. I never made that connection at all. It's, you know, I <laughs> as as a as a kid, I was probably not very uh, sensitive to sexism. But anybody's always fascinated me specifically because of that name, just the, the savage cruelty of that name. And the degree to which the, the character embraces it, because having a having a gang name is at least one step closer to being a member of the gang. Hmm. I don't know that that character fascinates yeah. me. It's uh, it's the smallest yeah. part of a story that just has so much going yeah. on. I definitely am, am with you there. There's a, a lot more around the the edges of this film that I find compelling than Maria and Tony. I'm 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 sorry. They're they're kind of a charisma black hole at the center of of this for me <laughs> they're representative uh more than mm-hmm. more than anything else yeah. they're symbolic of a specific thing there's a lack of specificity <laughs> to them as people that i think is uh maybe a little but there are there often tends to be like that's i think what what finally mm-hmm. made me accept the uh the boring love love at first sight ingenues in musicals was seeing sweeney todd and uh les mis back to back and realizing oh the ingenue pairing is always kind of kind of milk bland boring like that's just their mm-hmm. function in the story is to have this romance that you know, may or may not actually pay off in the end, but it's supposed to sort of give a shape to things uh, for other way more interesting characters to revolve around. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I think I have the, again, the opposite reaction that Genevieve to Tony Maria and that I think it's fine that, they're, that there's not a specificity to them. I think that's all, almost more of a strength that, that they just represent youthful idealism and love and something kind of like some pure thing that they're chasing you know i i don't know that that kind of thing it's just it's just uh that resonates with me other than, I, I don't necessarily want to know anything more about them well than, than, than just that they have these feelings the, the, the sign they, of a great character you don't want no, to know but, anything but, more about that yeah but i mean like i i because i think they again they think they have they have a powerful representative quality that is then expressed through the music yeah, Maria's really representative of the Puerto Rican immigrant <laughs> experience in this She's... film. I'm sorry, I'll stop. I'm 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 being <laughs> confrontational. No, yeah, again, I don't. That's that stuff doesn't like again. It really even that stuff, as I said, that like doesn't resonate with me. It's just expressions of love set to music yeah, she is she is not meant to represent the immigrant experience there's I a know. reason she's not in america the song you know professing a belief one way or the other she's meant to represent innocence you know these are these are our sacrificial lambs oh that's in, what that white dress true, was about <laughs> yep, innocence and purity these are our sacrificial lambs and they're they're specifically being sacrificed on the altar of the need to bring the community together like that's what the romeo and juliet story is always about is the uh the two houses uh like in dignity 
who have to come together and the only thing that can bring them together is a tragedy that touches them both equally. Which is why I think it's really interesting and daring that Maria survives West Side Story, which is feels like almost a bit as big of a departure from uh from Romeo and Juliet as like moving this story forward to 1950s, 1960s New York. The film knows that we know that this is a Romeo and Juliet story, especially at this point. And it it puts a gun in her hand and it, you know, it, it creates the scenario that you think is going to happen because it's a Romeo and Juliet story. And then it doesn't. And that feels, like you said, uh, daring and sort of explicit, too. She lives and and we leave the theater with a song in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you leave the feel of the theater with a song in your heart. Well, I'm sure there's a ton more to talk about, but speaking of uh, finding your romantic leads kind of bland and not wanting more detail about them versus wanting very, very specific romantic leads that have a lot going on in the relationship, that's something we're definitely going to cycle back to uh, when we talk about connections between West Side Story and In the Heights in our next episode. In the meantime, though, uh, we should wrap this up, uh, dance sullenly offstage with no music, and maybe uh, get to a little feedback. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got a very long letter from a listener named Luke about our analysis of Rear Window a few weeks back, and I wish we could read you this whole thing because it's really insightful and in-depth, but it's also just quite a lot. Genevieve, would you mind reading us an excerpt? Sure. Luke is writing about our analysis of Jimmy Stewart's character, Jeff, and his distanced and judgmental relationship with Lisa, played by Grace Kelly. He writes... It seems to me that Jeffries exists in some kind of Freudian state of presexual, even prepubescent, scopophilia. His camera lenses grow as he is aroused by the dramas of sex and death playing out in front of him. But his camera is impotent. As you all pointed out, he is not even taking pictures of what he sees. His camera is devoid of sexual potential, and by extension, so is he. I don't think it's too Freudian of a read to think that anything in the film is a symbol of his impotence. It's difficult to overstate how prevalent Freudian psychological ideas were in the public consciousness in 1954. I don't know Freud's theories in depth, but it's my sense that as a voyeur, Jeff is in a state where he is like a prepubescent boy who is not yet ready to be aroused by Grace Kelly. He's not incapable of affection. He's incapable of sexual potency, as also symbolized by his broken appendage. The entire film is a referendum on marriage and sexual connection. Almost everyone in the courtyard is in some stage of progress toward or away from sexual and romantic connection, which Jeff mostly seems to view with the judgment that he is glad to be avoiding their fate. I think the reason Hayes and Hitchcock are so determined to present Jeff as an impotent voyeur is because the whole film functions as a study of the experience of a movie audience. As audience members, we may invest in the male gaze and admire the mistorsos of cinema, but we never get to touch them. We may have great empathy for the experience of characters we care about, but we're like Jeff in being stuck to our seat, unable to participate or help. That's the reason Jeff can't even cry out to save her, because as a character, Hitchcock needs him to be symbolic of our own metaphoric impotence slash passivity as voyeurs in the movie theater. The trade-off for our visual pleasure in fictional narrative is a passive stance in which every peril that a character may endure can't be anything more than entertainment for us, because we have no ability to change their fate. Like Jeff blinding Thorwald and himself with his flash, the only thing we can do to fend off a cinematic horror is to close our eyes. 
This voyeuristic passivity and even pleasure in the peril of others would be a profoundly inhumane and immoral stance to have about real people, and one that I think Hitchcock is fascinated by as a stance to have about fictional people. So I think the fascinating thing about this uh, this letter, apart from the uh, like the deep Freudian read, is that it it just feels like it really ties together Scott's theory about the whole thing being a metaphor for uh, the cinematic gaze and my theory about uh, Jeff's relationship with Lisa and why they aren't uh, why they aren't attached to each other that has nothing to do with with boredom or that boredom is at the at, like the smallest part of it it's this feels like a a, a giant unified th- field theory that brings it all together, um, just kind of on a higher level. I mean, it's been 20 years since I saw Rear Window. It, I wasn't on that episode. So, you know, I, I wasn't going to speak up uh, for this. But after having read that, like, I think it's a just a even just that that letter I just want to praise is like a really tight theory well presented about the film. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I, I think I think we were stunned into silence by 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 its insight. <laughs> I know it's it's it's, a, it's it's quite good. And and thing about Hitchcock and 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 Freud is, you can really you can't go wrong. <laughs> you know you're gonna yeah. you're gonna you're gonna it's gonna it's gonna work because it's it's all over Hitchcock in general. Um, uh, and just the era was so it's just in the in the in the atmosphere at the time. So so yeah, it, it's it, applying this this lens to the, this film or any other Hitchcock film is going to get you some interesting results. Yeah, I, I I feel like the Freudian undertones of a rear window just became straight up overtones and something <laughs> like Marnie la- later mm, on, yeah, which is extremely uh, explicitly kind of like thuddingly in a good way um, Freudian. But um, but I, this is a fine uh, read of the film. I really like the idea of the blinding of Thorwall being. So similar to to how we kind of close our eyes uh when uh we're faced with something horrific on the screen that we can do nothing about i thought that was i think that's a really strong insight we had like a just we should say we had just a massive pile of letters for the uh, for for this uh, uh, to choose from from this episode and and voicemails uh, a lot of really really great stuff and so uh we, we could have done a whole separate episode on feedback alone it was very good so so thank you to our listeners for that and and uh and sorry if if yours was not included it was great whatever it was <laughs> we may come back to it we, we we've got that's true weeks ahead of us yeah <laughs> and we do tend to wax and wane i i just i really like the idea of kind of focusing here on jeff's impotence maybe not his literal sexual impotence but on his impotence in this situation uh because he's stuck in a wheelchair because he can't uh, you know join the uh the panoply that he's seeing every night because he doesn't know what to do with lisa because he's uh, you know reduced to this kind of passive gaze and then the symbolic idea of the the movie audience as impotent i think maybe is something we all want to resist we don't none of us want to think of ourselves as impotent like sexually or otherwise in any of the many spheres we could be impotent. But I think reminding ourselves that we are effectively, you know, in a state of paralysis in the movie theater, that all we're really free to do is have our thoughts and have our emotions, have our responses, but we can't interfere in any way. I I just think that's a really interesting thing to bring to the forefront of any movie to, to turn into text rather than subtext. 
Well, moving on, here's an audio challenge from Will in North Carolina, who listened to our Patreon episode on Scott's big Shrek diversity, where he became the Twitter villain of the day for dismissing Shrek on its 20th anniversary. Let's listen. Hi, this is Will from North Carolina. Um, I enjoyed Scott's recent article in The Guardian, which discussed his dislike of Shrek, uh, both on the film's own merits and for how it influenced animated movies over the next decade. Um, That got me thinking, are there other films that have inspired similar feelings for you, where you both dislike them on their own merits as well as for the trends they've inspired? And on the flip side, are there any other movies that have had the opposite effect, where they're both great works of art or entertainment that have also influenced film for the better? So I think like my answer probably won't be surprising to anyone who's heard me uh, rant on on this podcast about my my dislike of the Disney live action remake films. So my my initial instinct for this was to say Maleficent, which is sort of like the first of the so-called Disney brand deposits, uh, brand deposit films, which is a term that I will never, ever let go of. Um, (laughs) And I think it just sums up so much of my, you know, distaste for those films in general. But as I was checking my work and seeing, was this was this actually like the first Disney brand deposit film? I was reminded, no, actually, it was I think it was the first film that came out after that unfortunate phrase was coined. But I think the actual fault for uh, that that shift, that shift in a cinematic paradigm can be laid at the feet of a slightly earlier film. And that is uh, 2010's Alice in Wonderland, directed by uh, Tim, Tim Burton, which is just a kind of disgusting film <laughs> that nonetheless uh, was uh, pretty successful, but and but also Usually. like, kind of, yeah, but also successful. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was sort of the the film that planted the seed in uh, you know Disney's corporate brain to kind of keep doing this. And I, I actually feel better blaming Alice in Wonderland and uh, for that than I do Maleficent uh, because of the sort of live action Disney film that range from, you know, sequels to spinoffs to just direct remakes, um, none of which I think is particularly better than the other. But I think Maleficent is on the sort of the higher end of, of achievement, while at the same time not being a film that I really have any deep desire to return to. So that's my answer. Alice in Wonderland 2010. Yeah, M- Maleficent, though, has is connected to another terrible trend. I can't claim this is my trend because I, I have something specific in mind, but just like starting with those like those prequel series right with the with the with the lucas star wars this idea mm. of needing to fill in the backstories of all of these of villains who, in particular yeah, like, yeah the, right. like we just got cruella too you know which i haven't it, seen and don't exactly. really want to <laughs> you know and i think there's like it kind of ruins the mystique or or you know it's uh um so it, it's like a bad trend connected to another bad trend yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kind of enjoyed Cruella, but I think that the reason I enjoyed it is because it feels so separated from 101 Mm. Dalmatians. And yeah, I could honestly claim Phantom Menace as mine in terms of that feeling that, you know, I just I go to Patton Aswalt's rant all the time mentally about how knowing where the things you came you think are cool came from doesn't make them cooler. It just makes them sadder. And, you know, seeing Darth Vader as a a sad orphan boy torn away from his mom after being a slave, like, does not make that character more resonant or more interesting. It just it elongates the story. And the idea that at this point, if a good film comes along, 
we need a prequel to see where that that came from because we don't have anywhere to go because like a good story we don't know how to follow so instead we'll just like fill in details that the original story fundamentally thought you didn't need you know that they weren't important that they weren't part of the story I've come to just kind of hate the modern prequel and particularly filling in the backstory of villains because part of what gives a villain mystique is mystery and saying that no villain should have mystery anymore. We've, we've got to see about the, uh, you know, the tragedies that shaped them. Well, like, you know, then who do you, who do you boo at in from the groundling <laughs> seats anymore? Without rewatching them, and, and I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but I found my, myself warming to the Star Wars prequels in my mind, uh, just because they are, they have character to them. I mean, they're, they're, they have all kinds of problems, but they're definitely someone's artistic vision and, and not the result of a bunch of corporate uh, decisions. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yeah. I Just one person's bad decisions <laughs> rather than many. Right. <laughs> right. Well, all right. So I, I think an example of I, the ones that really bother me on this front are the ones where people take away all the wrong lessons. Like, um, you know, Blair Witch Project would be one example where it's like, you know, it, what, what it does is really clever, but it's also and simple to imitate, but it's done very well. Um, and the many, many uh, you know, found footage horror films that, that um, you know, followed were not to the standards. But the one that I, I mean, to me, I think our, our generation's one is it has to be Pulp Fiction and Quentin Tar Tarantino in general, mm. where it's like instead of, you know, Let's go seek out of a bunch of, of of disparate influences. Let's let's watch broadly across a lot of world cinema. Uh, let's focus on dialogue and, and how dialogue works in a scene. Let's let's consider how genre films can can you know be are often very rich texts and 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 to be uh, explore that and subvert it and, and make, twist it in new forms. We've got a lot of movies with you know tough guys with guns. Maybe talking about you know how you know Nancy Drew or something. <laughs> for one scene, you know, I mean, this is the easiest things to take away from that were what, um, you know, or what they remember with. It, it tends to be, it happens a lot with breakthrough films like Halloween. You know, you can't blame, Halloween is, is a near perfect film, if not a perfect film, but but the many, many films that, that just kind of ran, took the simplest parts of it and ran with it, um, while it's often an object of fascination for me, I mm -hmm. does not necessarily mean they were great, great movies. But I mean, uh, you know, it's a case where, where you can't blame uh, an artist for for his or her imitators. Uh, but uh, but you could also see something like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs as the point from which, yeah, if that hadn't happened, we would have spared a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, of mediocre uh, imitators. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm glad you you didn't quite go all the way on that slasher film. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, sure. Hey, because there's there's a lot of uh, I have affection for that genre as it's played out in the '80s. Not when it was then turned into kind of PG-13 rated movies in the uh, late '90s and early aughts. That was uh, that's when the trend. That's when the slasher movie really got extremely bad. When before it was oh, also also often bad, but. Well, Scream is no. a great example of that, though, because I think Scream is a very smart, insightful film. Yep. And and the, and the takeaway was like, even with the sequels, to some degree, is like, oh, let's just do what they did, but not as smart. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to be great. It's hard to make a great movie. Yeah. 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 It's true. You can yeah. try, but some of the, some of these things weren't even trying. So you hate that. Uh, my my go to answer here is is uh, Dogman ninety five. I of oh, course interesting. Like a uh, like the celebration quite a bit. That is Dogma number one. 
but very few of the other ones uh, really resonated. To me, it introduced a set of values in movies that I felt w- was destructive. Um, it, it may be inevitable in a way because this was this was the coming of the digital revolution and people being able to make something either DIY or, or faux DIY productions. Uh, there was an American version of it called Indigent that put out films like Tadpole and that the pieces of April all all bad. Um, it, to me, it was like there was this idea that if that when you take all these things away that go into making movies all of these you know artificial things um like lighting and (laughs) and and composition that you're going to land on a more authentic vision a a stripped down raw real drama and i i don't think that's what we ended up with i think what we ended up with was a was a severe devaluation of what cinema could do and, and has done and should do <laughs> to me and I, and I don't know if we've ever quite gotten over it uh really um it's uh, i mean i think the, the films look better now i think the, the the digital cameras certainly make films look great but um i, I felt i feel ultimately that was a a, uh, a gimmick i think i was trying to defend it for a little bit because of uh you know, uh, because that f- the c- celebration was so good, and I, I I was intrigued by the idea of necessity being the mother of invention of of, of if you t- have these limitations that maybe that you impose upon yourself, maybe that you can be they lead to really creative, interesting solutions. But I, I don't think that's the way it played out. I think it at, resulted in a lot of bad movies and, a, and bad looking movies, and uh, and a trend in in independent cinema that I uh, came to really resent. And there are a lot of dogma films for there to be bad dogma films, too. Uh, on the other question that we'll ask, the the inverse of that, the first thing that leaps to my mind in terms of films that set a, a, a positive direction for cinema is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Uh, the, the whole idea that it used to be an unusual idea to, to conceal the monster or to conceal the the threat and slowly build up over time. Just, it seems like such a basic fundamental idea of horror cinema in particular, but the fact that it was, it was all a happy accident. Like I just, I can't help but wonder if that, that plastic shark had been front and center throughout most of the movie. If a, we would consider jaws uh, like a hokey summer entertainment that nobody ever wanted to revisit. Like the Meg film we paired it with on this podcast. Exactly like the Meg. We talked about the Meg for like a whole episode. How did we do that? All more or less forgotten about. That could be Jaws. And that could have launched a uh, uh, like an ongoing horror thing where, you know, much like Bong Joon who hosts the host, like the monster just shows up in the first scene and just kind of hops around. Like the horror films could look very different if not for Jaws, despite the fact that there's the, always the question of whether uh, whether Jaws is a horror film. But Plus you get that great gag in Airplane with the with the tail of the plane going through the clouds like uh, Jaws, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, great, mm-hmm. just great. Thanks, yeah. Dad Joke Man. <laughs> uh, anybody else have any uh, films that started a positive revolution they want to call out? Oh, I didn't know we'd have to say something positive. While you're musing on that, I'll bring up another one, which I think we haven't really fully seen uh, the ramifications yet. But Jordan Peele's Get Out uh, and the way it it's actively guiding horror films more towards dealing with uh, 
like difficult contemporary issues as opposed to just contemporary issues. Like Scott has called out for a very long time now how horror fundamentally kind of uh, takes on the anxieties of the era. But when the anxiety of the era is uh, our president is ordering people to be tortured and then the result that we get is, you know, Hostel 12 or Turistas 15 or whatever. I like that first Hostel movie. Uh, well, that's just it. With any any uh, Teresa's not good though. Any horror movie that you look at, like the first in the series, um, you're probably going to have a, a much more resonant experience. But then it gets watered down and watered down and watered down. And I feel like Get Out steered back into the skid of well, horror movies can be challenging, you know, in terms of uh, their themes, in terms of their ideas, and they can bring up things that we're really uncomfortable about in the culture as opposed to just things that we're scared about when we're lying at home in the bed in bed in the dark by ourselves like horror can be bigger about about taking on some of these big societal issues and it feels like for a while that was a little more resonant and i i don't know if we're just going to tip back it it feels like right now there's so much kind of crappy VOD digitally shot. Some friends made a movie horror that maybe people aren't taking in that lesson well enough. Um, but it, it really felt like it was going to open up a good trend. And and to some degree, it did at the time. Yeah, I don't disagree with you entirely. But also Get Out strikes me as one sort of a prime example of what Keith was talking about of people maybe taking the wrong lesson from a, from a film. And I, I think with Get Out in particular, I, I feel like you can trace a direct line from Get Out to the Amazon series Them, um, which I, I did not watch, but I, uh, I did uh, spend a, a while editing a piece by uh, our former Next Picture Show guest, Angelica Jade Bastion, on it, uh, ex- excoriating piece on, on them and sort of engaging with the series fixation on Black trauma as horror in and of itself. And I think that that's something I think you can tie to get out the idea that watching black trauma on screen is horror experience in and of itself that is worthwhile. Um, and I, I think that is a, a problematic stance to take for, for many reasons for obviously for black viewers, but for all of us. Yeah, I was in the same boat of uh, being really taken by the advertisement for that show and and wanting to watch it until I, I assigned a critic to watch it. And she came back with like, this is just hours upon hours upon hours of uh, watching black characters be tortured for for emotional value and then watching the white characters torturing them be be justified. And so I never did watch it either. So I can't personally judge. But that message was just what I was hearing from critics over and over and over. Uh, and hopefully the the resounding cultural rejection of them will uh you know, be a lesson to people in terms of like, maybe go back to get out and uh, see what else can be mined from that. Cause you, you definitely got the wrong <laughs> message here. Yeah. Though, though I would say as a kind of a horror person that, I mean, a get out is almost an exception to the rule for me. I, I kind of, well, and Romero did that though. I, I see. I was about to say that. I think that I like it when horror films are not so conscious of the messages that they're projecting when it just is part of the texture uh, of, of the film um, and of the times it's just kind of reflected there rather than being like, okay, we're going to lead 
we, we've got these big themes that were kind of kind of expressed through this movie, but Romero kind of did that. And he yeah, was awesome, Romero so. became more conscious of it. I, I actually kind of believe him when he says Night of the Living Dead was even the casting of a black lead was was almost accidental. Mm, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, our our friend uh, Jason Zeidman, who uh, works in New York Times and 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 wrote the book Shock Value, which is a very good book about seventies horror, uh, talks about uh, how you know he prefers the, the less self aware uh george romero i love dawn of the dead it's one of my favorite movies of all yeah. time so I, i'm and it's 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 super self-aware but um but uh but i, I get his point well that was a lot thank you for that challenge will uh we we definitely appreciate it and as always we appreciate in general when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations uh if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net and that's it for this episode of the next picture show in our next episode we'll move the action uptown while sticking to the west side of new york for a story that keeps looking at the immigrant experience and is still concerned with romance and identity but from a much more immigrant focused perspective Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember to schedule regular checkups with your primary care physician because no one wants a fellow with a social disease. I think I go back to San Juan. I know what boat you can get on. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Everyone there will give big cheers. Hey! Everyone there will have moved here. Oh. Oh. <laughs>